go ahead and open with prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and to worship you in the study of your word. We ask that your spirit guide and lead us as we open your word and look at it. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, Psalm 79. This is a prophetic psalm. And so we're going to read, read the whole psalm and then we'll start talking about it. A psalm of Asaph. O God, the heathen are coming to your inheritance. Your holy temple have they defiled, and they have laid Jerusalem in, on heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given to be meat unto the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of your saints unto the beast of the earth. Their blood they have, they have shed like water around about Jerusalem, and there is none to bury them. They are become a reproach to our, we are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them that are round about us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Shall, you, shall your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the heathen that have not known you, and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let your tender mercy speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name, and deliver us, and purge away our sins for your name's sake. Wherefore shall the heathen say, Where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of your servants which is shed. Let the sign of the prisoners come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve them, preserve you those that are appointed to die. And render unto our neighbors sevenfold unto their bosom with their reproach, wherein they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever, and will show forth your praise to all generations. All right. So we have this uh, prophetic psalm. It says it's a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph is one of was in David's time was appointed to be in charge of the singers and his family were part of that group of singers and we know that this psalm is not in David's time it is talking about some future event some believe that one of Asaph's you know distant relatives has wrote this uh, but I don't necessarily believe that God is able to show prophecy and he showed Asaph very clearly what was going to happen in the temple and this happened to the temple twice, as, as you're aware of. It happened once when the Babylonians took them captive and destroyed the temple, and then in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the second temple. So either one of these can be what it's talking about. And we're going to look a little closer at it. It's very, it's prophetic. It's, and it starts out, O God, the heathen are coming to your inheritance. Your holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. This is, this is quite a beginning sentence for him. God, the heathen, are come into your inheritance. And when you read the word your inheritance, it means Israel. Okay? The, the heathen have come into Israel. And he's speaking, again, either of the Babylonian or Roman times. And I think he's speaking of the Babylonian so. in, invasion because... Rome did not re-enter into Israel when they destroyed the temple in 70 AD. They were already there. So I believe he's talking about the Babylonian Empire coming in, and they laid siege to Jerusalem and the people. 
And it says, your holy temple they have defiled. They came in and they destroyed the temple. And both Babylon and Rome destroyed the temple and they took every brick, every stone apart. And mostly they did it because in both temples they were, they poured gold over the stones, you know, to, for decoration. Now, the temple in Jerusalem, when it caught the light, could be seen for a very long ways because it sat on a mountain made with, wasn't made of gold, but gold covered all the stones and the sun would shine off those gold, off that gold and you would see the temple from all over the place. So now when they went to conquer and tear down the temple, they would decide they wanted all the gold. And that gold that had melted went into the cracks and crevices of the rock. So as they were stripping it down, they would actually take levers and pull every stone off of the, off the temple so they could get every bit of gold. Both Babylon and Rome did this. And they totally destroyed the temple. And Rome, when they destroyed it, it was destroyed to the point where they're not even absolutely sure where the temple is on the Temple Mount. Uh, the satellites have shown us that it's not where they thought it was. Okay? They used to think that the Dome of the Rock was built on the site of the temple, but the satellites are showing that there's a foundation southeast of the Dome of the Rock that fits the size and dimensions of the temple. And so we're seeing that they could build the temple on the Mount of the Temple Mount without destroying the Dome of Rock and build it on the right site. And when you look at what John was told by the angel when he came and he saw the, the temple, he says, God told him to measure the temple and leave out the court of the Gentiles because it was given to another. So we see the fact that they could build both. They could build some kind of wall up there and saying this is the Muslim half, this is the Jewish half. And this is probably what the Antichrist will give them as a solution. We'll build a wall, we'll split the mountain, the Jews can have their half with the temple and the Muslims can have their half with their, with their mosque. So we see this whole process coming in, this very beautiful thing that when they destroyed it so thoroughly, People had the wrong location. They built this because the Muslims built it on purpose where they thought the temple was because they wanted to desecrate that site for the Jews and make it their site. And so, but God has protected it. And he protected it mainly by having it destroyed <laughs> completely. And so it lays the foundation for the future. And, but ASAP here is saying, God, your inheritance your inheritance has been defiled. Your temple has been defiled. And they have laid Jerusalem, his city, to, in, in waste. And they did do that because when, they, when the Babylonians came, they took all the wealthy people out of his, uh, Judah. And they wiped out it. And they left the poorest of the poor who could not run a country. Okay. A lot of people will say, well, if you just give the poor a chance, they will be able to do it. And yes, maybe one or two of them can, but the average poor person can't handle money because that's why they're poor. Okay. They don't know how to get a job. They don't know how to handle the money when they get it. And you see that when people win the lottery 
or even some of these athletes that grow up in poor families and they get a million dollars in signing bonuses and at the end of their career they're flat broke because they don't know how to handle their money. Are there poor people who can if they're given a chance? Absolutely. They're just poor for whatever circumstances, but many of the poor are poor because they just haven't learned to handle. And when Babylon came, they left the poorest of the poor. Yeah, they, it was a mean area, and then they imported people into this. And Babylon did that a lot. Babylon was one of the countries that, when they conquered a country, they shipped all the best people out of that country and shipped other people from other countries, conquered countries, into, into the country they just conquered. Mixed the people up so that they wouldn't have this desire to rebel. You know, how much are you going to defend a country that you have no ties to? How, how much can you even defend? Even if you wanted to defend it, how could you talk to the people that you don't know how to, their language? So they did all of this and they would keep people totally off, off foot. And then later on when they conquered another country, they'd move people around again Brilliant. and keep them. And so here we're seeing Asaph is seeing this destruction, the destruction of God's holy land. Because if we read through the scriptures, the th things that God says is his people are, e are Israel. Jerusalem is his city. And the temple was where he was going to sit. And we're going to see that all at the, in the time of the millennial kingdom, Israel is going to be his people, the center of the world. Jerusalem is where the king is going to sit, ruling the world. And the temple will be running for him. So we see all the things that he cares about, and we see that the end times being destroyed. And this is what Asaph, can you imagine how Asaph's feeling when he's writing this? He's getting a vision of the destruction of what God loves, but also what he loves. David is building a beautiful city out of this. The, he's getting ready to lay this temple. And Solomon builds this temple that's going to be destroyed. And if you remember when we were doing Ezra and Nehemiah, when the, when the older people came back to Jerusalem and they saw the new temple, they cried. They cried not for the fact that the temple had been built, but they cried because of how inferior the new temple was to Solomon's temple. Okay, Solomon had built a beautiful temple. It was the, one of the great wonders of the ancient world destroyed. And when they built what was going to come later to be known as Herod's temple, because Herod did a huge expansion on it and made it much better than it was when it was first built. When they built that new one, it was so inferior that people were basically sad. And the older, the older people who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple looked at that and said, okay, it's nice, but, it's nice, but. And we want to, we, we see that. And then he sees in verse 2, the dead bodies of your servants have been given to meet unto the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of your saints, unto the beast of the earth. Again, the preciousness, he says, your precious inheritance, God. They didn't even bury them. They just left them. Left them to be consumed by the beast. That's, a, that's about as much as you can do to defile the body. And the Jews have a very strong sense. When somebody dies, you bury them. And even if they're not a Jewish person, they got them buried quickly. This is why when Jesus hung on the cross, they wanted him off the cross that night. 
as soon as he died, they wanted him in a grave, and they did not want him hanging on the Passover anyway, but they would have, done, they would have wanted to remove his body because that was their desire. You did not leave a body out. And if you go through the Old Testament, a lot of times you'll hear they killed so-and-so, they hung his body, and then a few sentences, a few verses later, they're going to go, and they cut him down and they put him in a tomb. Okay, because that was not the dead. They wanted them to be shown that he was dead, but they weren't going to leave him there to be consumed by the beast and to, to rot in the sun. Roman, Babylonian, the rest of these countries, they had no such compulsion. Rome, they hung you on a cross and left you there until, until your flesh fell, you rotted and you fell off the cross. Yeah. Okay, they, did, they, they didn't care that you hung there. As a matter of fact, they wanted you to hang there so that you would be a warning to anybody that came by, this is what happens to those who defy Rome. It was done. It was done by another city. Another city did it for him, and David rewarded them for that, because the enemy put their bodies on display. But this is the heathen have always done this. They defied people and they put them and they hang them to be an example. And we saw that as we finished the book of of Esther, they hung Haman's body. And in being that they were in the Medo-Persian Empire, it would have stayed up until it fell, because that was the way they were. And so we see here that he's saying they, they've killed people and they've just left their bodies out. And this happened so often in that, in that world. And it says, their blood they have shed like water around Jerusalem, and there is none to bury them. And again, this is probably the Babylonian Empire that has done this. Both Rome and Babylon did this. It's kind of why it's hard to determine because both of them did the same thing. They killed the people and they carried the people away. Uh, Rome took the Jews and totally scattered them across the, the Roman Empire. Babylon did the same thing. They took them and they scattered them across the, the Babylonian Empire. So each one of these will be a true statement. They besieged the city. They killed those who... who who fought against them, and then they took the rest and scattered them. And the Jews have been scattered since the Roman Empire until the 1940s when they had got their country back, and they were brought back together. But before that, they had been scattered for you know, 1,900 years. They were scattered around the, the world, and now they're back together. You know, amazing what God does with this nation of Israel. He scattered them when the Babylonian Empire took over. And do you remember why he scattered them when the Babylonian Empire took over? According to Jeremiah, he said, because you haven't kept the Sabbath of the land, you will be in captivity for 70 years. They had not had the Sabbath of the land for 490 years, and God says, you haven't done what I told you. Now you're going to, the land is going to have its rest, and you're going to be taken out. And they were gone for 70 years. And then God said, and, and then when Cyrus came to power, it, Daniel is realizing that it's 70 years. <laughs> and he says, oh, it's time for us to go back. Isaiah had predicted that Cyrus would be the one that sends them back. Now, Cyrus, and he says from the, from the Median Empire, okay, and it was 150 years before Cyrus was born and before the Medo-Persian Empire was more than just a little town. 
And Isaiah had said, Cyrus, my shepherd, will send my people back. And I am sure that Daniel grabbed the book of Isaiah, walked it into Cyrus and said, look at this. Because Cyrus read it and sent them back. We're looking at verse 3. Actually, I'm in other places at the moment. but So all of this has been going on. Rome went in, in in 70 AD and destroyed the temple and scattered the Israel people. This time, it wasn't just 70 years. It was 1,970 or something along that line. It's uh, 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 1,870. So it was a long time that they were scattered. And then they came back. I don't know if you've ever realized what a miracle it is for Israel to be brought back as a nation following the religion that they had before they left. There's no other nation that's ever been scattered for over for almost 2,000 years and remained their own group. And the Jews have done that. They stayed, no matter where they went, they adapted a little bit to the, wherever they were at, but they, be, they stayed Jewish. They practiced the feast. They practiced their, their religion and remained Jews. And that's something that doesn't usually happen with people. You scatter, America has been built on the idea of the melting pot. You bring people in and they become American. They don't keep their, their nationality until recently. And God has protected his people. When the Jews came back, they were still Jews. They were still practicing Jews. And they came back as a nation. Now, they're somewhat agnostic to even, to even atheist in their country at this moment. But God still says, they're my people. They still, even though they're an agnostic atheist country, they still don't do anything on Saturday, the Sabbath day. They may, they may not understand why they're doing, not doing anything on Saturday, and they may not understand the whole reasons behind it. But even when you talk to them, they'll say things like, well, I'm, I'm, I don't believe in God, but the next sentence down, later down the road, they're going, God gave this country to, to us. So it's kind of a very mixed bag. They claim to be atheist or agnostic, and yet they understand that they've got a God that has done great things for them, even if they don't truly believe in a God, because it is their social, it is everything about a Jew. A Jew, a Jew is more than just a religion to them. It's much like Christianity is supposed to be to us. It is the way of life. And as Christians, our life should honor God in all that we do. Now, sadly, oftentimes it doesn't. Sometimes we have the problem where we put God on the shelf and say, God, you stay over there till I need you. Mm -mm. <laughs> you know, and we've all done that at some point in our, in our time. God, you just kind of stay over there in the corner. If I need you, I'll come and, come and get you. Yeah. You, know, you can come and help me when I need you. I get in so much trouble, I can't get myself out of it. Yeah. And God is saying, God's going to go, okay, well, when you need me, I might not be there if that's what you want. He wants to be the center of our life 24-7, 365 days a year. He wants to be our God, our Father, our Keeper. Everything in our life needs to be geared toward Him in that way. And it is important for that. 
many of the teenagers back when my son was growing up in teenagers were looking for something real. And many times they looked at their parents and, said, and saw a Christianity they didn't consider real. Because we've in the past and oftentimes tend to, okay, God, I've got my God hat on on Sunday morning and I go to, go to church and when I get done with church, I'm going to take the God hat off and I'm going to put in you know, the family hat and then on Monday morning I put on the, the work hat and God, you don't have anything to do with the family, you don't have anything to do with work. You know, you wait till I put your God hat back on. And that's a sad place to be, but it is true that we compartmentize our life so often. And God wants to be in charge of every part of our life. And life is a whole lot easier when we leave him in charge of every part of our life and don't try to compartmentize our life and say, this is God, this is secular, and God, you don't have anything to do in the workplace. And God is saying, no, I'm going to be God of all of this. And it says in verse 4, And we became a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision unto them that are all that are round about us. Can you picture this? A taunt and a scorn. Because, because you've got to think about this. When God, when they claimed that they were God's people and God protected them, and yet they rejected him, and God rejected them. How often do people in, in their Christian walk talk about God to a degree, live like the world, and then wonder why people make fun of them? You know, you're talking about God one moment, but you're living just like everybody else the next moment, and then you wonder why people are making fun of you because you're not, you know, and making fun of God. This is what was going on at this time that they were seeing. People were taunting them. You can hear the taunts. Oh, you're God's people and, and you're being destroyed. You know, look, how weak is your God? <laughs> Oftentimes, we live a testimony that makes God look bad. And it's a bad place for us to be. I, I've shared this with many of you in here. I had an employee working for me when I first worked in here, moved here to Kingman. And he, was, he claimed to be a Christian. And he turned in his notice, and I took him aside about two days before his notice was over because I knew he wasn't going to work his whole notice out, and he didn't. And I told him, I go, I'm not talking to you as a manager, I'm talking to you as a fellow Christian. The next job you get, do not tell them you're a Christian. And he goes, well, why? I go, because you are too lazy and you're a lousy example of Christianity. He goes, you can't say that. And I'm going, I told you I'm not talking as a manager right now. I'm talking as a fellow brother Christian. And we as Christians have a testimony that live out in front of people. Now we're not going to be perfect. <laughs> now, we're going to make mistakes. And people look at when we make a mistake and they look at us. And when we repent and we still follow God, that is an impression to the world that does give them a, this is a different person. They're going to follow God even when they've failed. Now, if we fall and we wallow around in the mud for three years, that gives them an impression, too, that we don't truly believe in a God. We don't have a God that we want to follow and, and that is strong. The children of Israel had done that and have done that many times over. As they go into idolatry worship and forsake God, and he judges them and brings them back, here they're being judged because of their lack of following. If we don't obey God, if we are a bad example of testimony of God, 
he will discipline us. Sometimes that discipline is harsh. Just as when the Jews were sent into captivity for 70 years, just as when they were sent into captivity for over 1,800 years, God says, you have failed. And he's going to give discipline. Normally, discipline isn't that harsh. If we will repent, our discipline is not that harsh. But God wants it to be real repentance, real honoring of him. And he says, if you're going to name my name, let me live through you. And it's very important that we do that, because otherwise, we become just something for people to scorn, just to, just to make fun of. And people in this day and age are wanting to make fun of Christians anyway. Now, if you ever go online and you start looking at comments when anything religious is put up, posted, and you read the venom and the and the attacks to the person who dares to put a Christian message out there. It's amazing. And they're hiding behind their little, little names and everything that nobody knows who they are, you know, because they don't want to be bold enough to say, so-and-so says this about you. Verse 5, Asaph goes, How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Shall your jealousy burn like fire? And when we're in the middle of being disciplined by God, we very often will say, God, you know, number one, we start, God, why? <laughs> Even though we know why. But oftentimes we'll go, God, why? And then we're going to go, God, how long are you going to let this go? And you've got to keep in mind, God's, God's definition of time is a lot different than ours. Yes, it, it is his love that draws it. And jealousy here is the is the Hebrew word, and it literally means that he will not suffer anybody trying to get between him and his possession. Okay, and that is true jealousy. That is good jealousy. Okay, the, the person who gets jealous and won't let their, their uh, mate go out and do anything, that's not a good jealousy. I mean, that is, that is the negative jealousy we know. But a true jealousy would be somebody trying to get in there and try to get between a husband and a wife and try to say, well, I'm going to get between them. No, you're not going to let anything like that to happen if you are truly caring about your, 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 your mate. You're not going to let a male or a female get in there and try to break up the marriage. And here's where God's saying, God said that he was married to Israel. And he says, I'm jealous over this. You're bringing in all these gods and idols, and I'm not going to allow it to happen. And we've talked about the different ways they worship these idols is ridiculous, the things that happened. God says, I'm jealous of you. And he said this in Deuteronomy, that he was a jealous God. He was not going to let people come in and split him and his people up. And that meant that he would do what it took. But that feels good. Well, I'm loved by God that much. It should feel good. I mean, a honest, righteous jealousy is something that is good. The husband who, who comes, uh, comes involved with his wife and some co-worker trying to get between them and, and seduce her into a relationship should come in and defend her. The wife who has some, sees some lady going after her husband should be jealous enough to say, this isn't going to happen. 
That is an honest jealousy. Because it shouldn't, there should be nothing that tries to come between that relationship. God says they're glued together and it's not to be separated. And when you start tearing apart a marriage, and we, we make it so easy in this world nowadays, just whatever reason, God says that in the marriage they're glued together, soldered together, however, whichever term you want to want to talk about. And if you've ever put together, either with solder on metal or, or a good wood glue on, on a board, and you try to break them apart, the glue in the solder doesn't break. The wood breaks and rips the wood and makes it damaged. When there's a divorce and it shatters that life, the souls have been ripped. There's damage. And if you've ever talked to anybody who's been divorced for a long period of time, there's still bitterness in their heart toward that other person. Especially if there's kids involved. Some people have great bitterness when their lives are torn apart. And then you get people who've had three and four, five divorces, their hearts have gotten very cold and callous because they've been torn apart. Their soul has been torn apart so much. It's a serious issue that again the world takes so lightly and just like we were talking about this morning God has such a high standard for us and we take it so cavalier sometimes oh well it's no big deal you know, no it's sin it's it's bad it's against God's teaching we need to get into his word enough to know when God says something we need to hold on to it I'm very protective over Mm -hmm. And I think that the scripture that's used so often for marriage, whom God puts together that no man put asunder, mm -hmm. yeah. that's relational. That's mm -hmm. anyone that you come in covenant with or you profess Christ with. You have an obligation to them to protect your relationship on whatever level it might be at at that time. You have an obligation to the Lord and that person and that relationship. I love what you just said. You have an obligation to the person that's interfering to protect them from the damage God could do to them for what they're right. trying to do. Right. And that's a true statement too because it's protecting everybody. Yes. Because God does not hold blameless those who will destroy relationships. He does not hold blameless those who go against authority. And this is important for us to understand. When people will go against the government, let's say. Mm -hmm. Now, the disciples said that, that we have to obey God rather than men, but you know, oftentimes when we go against the authority of government, it's, it's not quite that severe and clear. But if you go against the authority, God says you will be judged. And even when the disciples said you've got to obey God rather than man, they understood that the government still had the right to punish them for disobeying them. They never went to the people and say, well, you can't punish us because we were obeying God. What they would say at the end of this was, thank, thank you, God, that you deemed us worthy of suffering. Mm -hmm. thank you, Jesus. Okay? If you go against authority, you will be punished. Even if you're following God's <laughs> obedience, mm -hmm. you will still be given that discipline. And this happens in all relationships. All the relationships that have that authority structure that God has placed in there. 
whether it's the church, the family, the, the government, you know, the workplace, you've got to stay in honor of God. And some of them you can step out of. I mean, if you have a job and a boss is a terrible boss who doesn't honor God, get out of the job. Leave the job. Uh, I've, I've been kicked out of many jobs because I wouldn't do, a couple of jobs because I wouldn't do things that I knew were illegal and said, nope, I can't do that. And we need to be careful. You don't be disrespectful to the authority you know, if you, in, the, in the government. And we're going to be forced as Christians in the near future to be disobedient to the government just as the apostles were. When they tell us that we can't call sin a sin, we can't preach the name of Jesus, that we can't go out and evangelize, we can't share Jesus, we have a decision to make. Are we going to obey man telling us not to do what God has told us, or are we going to obey God? Once we make that decision to obey God, we have to be ready, just like the disciples, <laughs> to take whatever punishment comes our way for being disobedient. And we're not being disobedient to be disrespectful, we're just saying, I'm being, I'm being obedient to a higher call. Annie? Kind of like Mark Cordingham's dad when he was asked, he's the one that put him in jail, not Corey, because he was told by the Gestapo, tell me that you will go home and stop doing this and I will let you and your family go. And he said, no, I can't tell you that. I will not turn away anyone who comes to my door asking for help. Yeah. And they knew it was because he was a Christian. Yeah. And we need to be aware that when we're disobedient, it will judgment. And that judgment, as he was talking about in, in, in World War II, oftentimes meant death. Yes. Even in the first century with Christianity, oftentimes it meant death. They would round, round people up and, and, and in Roman days and line them up and say, okay, all you've got to do is put a pinch of this flower in there and say, Caesar is Lord, and we'll let you walk away. Now, unfortunately, there were many Christians who, rather than face death, would go ahead and, you know, put the flower in, say, Caesar is Lord, go back and repent and be sorrowful. But there were also thousands of Christians who said, nope, Jesus is Lord. I cannot say that... Caesar is Lord. And they paid with their life. And if, you've read, if you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll find that how viciously many of them paid with their life. And won't go into any of those things, but you know, if you want to find out what Christians have done to pay for their life, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It is a hard book to read, but it tells us how vicious the world can be toward Christians and probably will be again in the future as the world gets more and more evil. It is critical that we be able to say, God, you're jealous. I want to live up to your standards. Because he is a God who's going to say, you denied me before men. I'm going to deny you before the Father. And that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't refer to your salvation, but it does refer to if you're saved and you're denying Jesus, you're losing out a lot of rewards. You're going to, you're going to have a lot of pain and lose out, and it's not easy. It's a decision we have to make before we get in there. It's just like any sin issue that you deal with. When, you, when, you, when I've talked with teenagers, I tell them the time to decide how far you're going to go with somebody of the opposite sex is not when you're at the party or in the, or in the car. That's too late to be making your decision. I 
No. Yeah, but that don't always work either. But, it don't always work, but you know what? But the time to decide how, where you're going is not when you're in the middle of the trial. Is not when you're in the middle of the temptation. You have got to have made up your mind beforehand, this is what I'm going to do. Does that mean it's going to be perfect and you're not going to fail? Not necessarily, but at least your mind is set. This God, is my decision. And God knows you, you have that mindset. Right. And so it's very important. How much truth will you say? A lot of people will ask, well, how close to the line can I go before I sin? Right. Wrong, wrong question. You've already gone too far. Okay, you're already too far. It can't be how close to the lie can I go before I'm telling a lie. It can't be how close to, to killing this person can I get before I've killed them. It can't be how, how close can I play with the fire of this sexual relationship without crossing the line. You know, it, it, we need to make our decision that I'm not even going to get close to this sin. Because if I make my decision I'm not going to get close to, I'm not putting myself in the position of falling. Now I may get maneuvered into a place where it's tough, and that's why my decision needs to be made beforehand. But if I'm saying I'm not going to, I'm not even going to start to try to, to, to lie in here and see how close it can be without doing it. It's not going to be I'm going to see how much I can flirt and play around with before I get burnt. And it's very important. Our decisions need to be for God. And very strong decisions need to be made for God. We need to keep ourselves moral by God's standards, not the world's standards, because the world's standards has you standing on the edge of the cliff you know, before you fall over, because they've made so much gray area in it. And I get accused oftentimes of being very black and white, but I am because God is black and white. Okay. Uh, to me, in many areas, it is very simple. This is what God says, this is what we do. And if I don't do it, I've sinned. Very simple. You know, the world wants to say, well, you've got all these shades of gray in between black and white, but not according to God. And when I talked about it this morning, in Numbers, God says that you have lied if you don't tell all the truth that you know. Okay, uh, omission of truth is still a lie in God's, in God's economy. Yeah, but what if the, uh, me, me, per, me personally, I don't sometimes want to hear all the truth. You would have to give the truth in love, which is what God says. You know, he says, tell the truth in love. A lot of times people will use truth. Well, I'm going to tell the truth, and they're trying to hurt you. Right. Okay. It works. Uh, and it works, and they can work to do that. But we want to be careful because God's standard is to tell the truth, not to leave out. Now, there's certain things you don't have to say, you know, uh, you know, you know, well, that, that outfit sure looks ugly. What do you know? Why do you ever put that on? You know, we don't need to say that kind of a statement. OK, give me the money. <laughs> so my mom is. And that's a, good, that's a good thing to, but I would go even further. I would go find something good to say because there's always something good to say to somebody and concentrate on the good, build up, edify, and, and get people to look. Have a nice day and a smile.
it could be anything good. I like your smile. I, I appreciate that you, that you came. Whatever it is, there's something you can say that's going to touch people. Verse 6, pour out your wrath upon the heathen that have not known you and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon your name. So now he's trying to get God to redirect. God, uh, there's people out there that don't know you. They're, they're, they're purposely disobeying you. You know, don't do it to us. I don't know that this is such a good prayer, but, but this is what Asaph's, this is the heart of where Asaph's at right now. God, you're destroying your people. Why don't you just turn this to the, the heathen that deserve this? Uh, he's kind of forgetting that they deserve it. <laughs> Uh, as well. No, and we're supposed to. Yes, and that's why it's worse. When we disobey and we're supposed to know better, it's worse than somebody who is living in the world being disobedient to God's law because they don't know any better. They're just following their flesh. And the flesh enjoys sin. And so when they sin, you know, and, it, and my statement to everybody has always been, when, this, when the sinner sins, it doesn't surprise me because they don't know any better. The sad part of it is when I continue it, when a Christian sins, it doesn't surprise me either because they're fleshly. And it's sad, but I don't get surprised when people sin because we are sinners. And we need to get that attitude that, you know, how often do we get surprised and shocked that a Christian hurts us through some sinful comment or action? You know, we get this idea that they're Christians, they're going to be perfect. Well, unfortunately, it would be nice if it was true, but it's not. The most important thing about that is when we sin, that we don't try to excuse it. Right. We need to agree with God that it was a sin. Too often, we, we, just like we talked about this morning, we try to make excuses. Well, it really wasn't that bad. Uh, well, I'm better than most people, and, you know, I just fell this one time. Uh, well, God, you know, I'm just sick. I, I've, got, I'm, 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 I've got alcoholism. I'm, I'm, I'm sick. I don't, it's, not, it's not a big deal. I've got stupidism. <laughs> stupidism. <laughs> Mental issues. But the most important thing for us as a Christian is to quickly agree with God that whatever it is that he's talking to us about is sin. Because until we recognize it as sin... We're not motivated to deal with it. Mm -hmm. If I can excuse it as, as anything but sin, then I'm not responsible for it in my own mind anyway. And this is why Satan is trying to get all these different sins declared to be sicknesses. You're not a drunk anymore. You're an alcoholic. You're not a thief. You're a kleptomaniac. You're not, a, you're, not, you're not a liar, you're just pathological. Okay? And Satan is trying very hard to whatever God calls sin to define it as sickness so that we decide we don't have to deal with it. Because if I'm sick, that's like saying you're gonna, that I've done wrong because I caught a cold. Verse 7, For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. You know, so he's saying, God, go get them. They're destroying your people. Go get them. Uh, and then in verse 8, Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let your tender mercy speedily prevent us, for we are brought low. And it basically speedily confront us is what he's saying. Let your tender mercies confront us. God's first desire 
is to very softly talk to us and say, you've sinned. And if you think about it, your times in your life that you know that you've fallen away and you've watched what God has had to do to get you back, especially if you've been stubborn and hard-headed, and you remember, man, God gave me a little message. The, the pastor gave the message or the, the, the brother or sister here gave me a message and I ignored it. And then I ignored it again. We see it in Jerusalem and, and the Jews all the time. He sends them prophets saying, you've got to repent. You've got to repent. You've got to repent. And when they don't, he would send national judgment on them. And he's saying, remember not the, the old God and speedily confront us with our sin. God always speedily confronts us with our sins. Always. Have you ever gone in and done a sin and immediately after you've done it, you were convicted <laughs> that it was wrong? You know, whether it was spoken or action, and all of a sudden you go, oh, man, that was wrong. And sometimes you, you can repent to your blood and face, but you can't undo it. Well, you never can undo it. <laughs> but if you repent, you get God's favor and res restoration. If you don't repent, then you're going to get another chance of conviction and eventually be judged. And this is something that's critical. Oftentimes we don't see God's judgment in our life. But God is judging and often. And that doesn't mean every bad thing that happens to us is his judgment because that's what, that's what Job's friends told him. You know, you're getting all this bad because you're, you're bad. And that's not always true. When something bad happens, the first thing we should do is say, God, have, have I been disobedient? And honestly look at your life. Don't, don't lie to yourself. The next step, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me or show me? You know, if, it's, if you've done something wrong, it's repent, confess it, repent, turn away from it. If it's not, then you say, God, what are you trying to teach me from all of this? Job was trying to be taught something. And it was a, it was a battle between God and Satan, but it was also a chance for Job to learn something. Job and his friends had a prosperity gospel. You do good, you get rewarded. And we've said this over and over. You read Job, and Job is, every time his friends talk to him, his answer basically in very poetic language is, I know that you are right about what you are saying, but I don't deserve this. I have not been wicked and evil. But he would basically be agreeing with him. I know that bad things don't happen to good people, he would basically say, but I have not been wicked and deserving this. God was teaching Job a great lesson. Okay, God will test you with your theology that you believe and for two reasons. Number one, do you truly believe it? Number two, if you believe bad theology, mm -hmm. he's going to test that and say, you know, get, get in the book and realize that what you're believing is wrong. Okay? So when we're going through hard things, first thing we look at is, do I deserve it? And then God, what are you trying to teach me? Are you just testing what I believe or are you trying to really teach me that what I believe is wrong? And we do a lot of this in our lifetime. We oftentimes will be taught things that are wrong or even read things and, and, and teach them to ourselves wrong. And we listen to a teacher who teaches something wrong. And God will say, oh, I'm going to have to come into your life and, and test you on this. Is it true in the scriptures that the righteous get rewarded? Yes, most of the time. Is it true that they always get rewarded? No. 
Okay? But we can know that if we are obedient to God, we will, in general, be rewarded by God. Now, God also knows that sometimes that reward will lead us away from God. And it's pretty amazing sometimes when you watch people over years, they've served God really strong and they've, and they've honored him. And they get a, and they get a little, little bit ahead in, the, in, their, in their wealth and they start buying the quads and the RVs and the, and the summer home and the vacation home and all these different things. And then you stop seeing them come to church because they're busy using all the toys that they bought. So the very blessing that God gave them took them away. We all need to be careful because any one of us are susceptible to that. That whole idea of getting so satisfied with this world's things that we walk away from God. And it doesn't necessarily need a lot of wealth to do so. But having said that, poverty is not always the answer either. You know, God is not looking at us to make us have nothing either, but we need to keep that balance. And Paul said it most importantly, learn to be content in much and with little. Contentment, that attitude of contentment is what's important. If I'm con there are people that are very wealthy who aren't content. Okay, they, you know, I believe it was Rockefeller who was asked, well, how much is enough money? He goes, just a little more. Yep. Just a little more. Multi-millionaire, one of the richest men in the world of, of his day, and you go, I just need a little more. He was never content with what he had. And the key to being worth working with God is to be content. If we know how to be content, he can trust us with a lot. And we'll be content. And we won't be trying to use it all on ourselves. And we read the verse in, in Ephesians this morning that let them that stole steal no more, but let them labor so that they will have to give to those who need. The reason for our labor is not for us to pile up piles and piles of, of gold and silver and stuff and be Scrooge McDuck swimming in his, in his, in his vault and all, in all of his wealth and never using it for anything, but to use it to help others and put treasure in heaven. Because God is saying, this is why I'm giving it to you. Not that you can hoard it all to yourself and, and not be content, but be willing to help. Does that mean we help everybody and, you know, indiscriminately? No, because sometimes helping people with money is not true help. No, it makes yours go away. You know, yeah, it makes yours go away and, and, they don't, and they don't respond and they take advantage of you. And this is why many people that get millions of dollars all of a sudden have friends, friends and family that come out of the woodwork to help them spend that money until it's gone, just like the prodigal son who had million, was given his inheritance and all of his friends helped him squander it and he had nothing and they all disappeared when he had no more money and he's ready to eat the pig food because he was not content. And God's saying, be content. Yeah. Our whole world system is built on making us discontent. We have a whole industry called advertising. And their job is to make you discontent with whatever you have and that you need something new and better and, you know, especially something like a car. You've got a car that works perfectly well, hasn't been in the shop every, every day, every, every week, and you've got to have this new car because this new car has internet technology on it and has, you know, has, has everything, you know, has, has, has seats that will warm your butt as you sit on them. You know, 
but and your car is just an old-fashioned car that gets you from point A to point B, uh, has a heating and air conditioning, so you're fine. But you understand what I'm saying. Is there anything wrong with everything they're trying to sell you? Not necessarily. But their whole goal is to make you discontent with what you have. You know, the society is there to make you discontent with the house you have because it isn't big, as big as the next person that you know or, or, or whatever it might be. You don't have the swimming pool. You don't have the tennis courts. You don't have the, the 28 rooms to have everybody that you don't know come over and visit. You know, but everything is geared toward making us discontent. Maybe we should downsize. God is saying, <laughs> downsize. <laughs> But again, contentment though is the key. Feet the contentment though is what is important for us, whether we have much or little. It says, verse 9, help us, O God, our salvation for glory of your name and deliver us and purge away our sins for your name's sake. He's saying deliver us so that you are elevated. His prayer is correct. His prayer is correct here. God, deliver us so that you are elevated. How many times in the wilderness did, did Moses go before God and say, God, you can't kill the people like you want to because your name will suffer. They will say that because you couldn't take them into the promised land, you were able to take them out of Egypt, but you couldn't take them into the promised land, you killed your people. And Moses more than once told God this. God, you can't do it because your name, your name will suffer if you do this. Because you'll, you'll just tell, be showing people you weren't strong enough to complete it. Here Asaph's telling that prayer, God, deliver us, deliver, because your name needs to be elevated. When we're in a hard spot, God, deliver. Your name is at stake. Yes, I may deserve this. And he's saying, we deserve this. Bring us to repentance, that's what he said. Bring us to repentance quickly and deliver us because your name is at stake. We represent you. But see, first, when he prayed this, repentance was first. God is not going to deliver us, even though his name will be at, at, at risk, if we're living in that sin and going to continue living in that sin. Because that is going to make his name look bad too. He's going to say, I will take you home before I, I let you ruin my name. And this is something we've got to remember. God loves us enough that he'll take us home before he, before he lets us ruin his testimony. And there are many Christians who go home early. Paul talked about them. They were sick in Corinth because of their sin, because of the taking of the, of the Lord's Supper wrong with no repentance. And God says, many, and Paul said, many of you are sick because you're not honoring God, basically. And if you turn, you repent, you will be delivered. And here we see in the same thing. He says, first, bring us to you. Confront us, God, so we can repent. Then deliver us for your namesake. He will defend. And have you ever been there where you have finally confessed to some lifestyle, bad lifestyle you've been committing? and then watched God all of a sudden turn your life completely around. God will do this for us. He will not reward us while we live in sin. He will let us go make bad decisions. He will let bad things happen to us. 
But it's so amazing when you finally give up and say, okay, God, I give up, I repent, and you watch how he turns your whole life around in an instant. Very important for us. God wants to bless us, but he will not bless us if we're not living for him. Because then he's rewarding us for doing wrong. And if you want to reward somebody for doing wrong, you can watch them become a spoiled brat very quick. And many of the wealthy kids get that. Their parents bail them out of everything they do wrong without making them repent, without making them get correct. And they become spoiled, rotten brats who think they can get away with everything. God's not going to do that with us. He's going to let us suffer until we're ready to repent. And then he says, okay, let's, let's fix everything for you. And it happens so quick. His promotion can turn around and come so quick. And we look at, you know, not that Joseph did anything wrong, but look how quick his promotion finally came when it came. Okay, it took 13 years. And this poor kid is thinking everything is wrong. God, I keep, you know, I can picture it. God, I keep doing everything right, and you keep making things worse. Yeah, what's up, God? You know, uh, you know can you imagine how he thought 13 years? You know, he's with his dad. He's being promoted. He's doing everything his dad talks, and his brother sell him into slavery. And he, you know, and he goes along, and he's helping Potiphar. He gets raised in Potiphar's house and gets accused of rape, sent into prison, sitting in a stinking dungeon. Remember, their prisons weren't anything like our prisons. They were not a good place to be. And sat in this prison and went from being a prisoner to being second in charge of Egypt overnight. Daniel went through that same process multiple times. You, know, you got somebody like Jeremiah, who every time he opened his mouth, the king threw him in a pit. <laughs> you know, you're speaking against the kingdom. <laughs> he never got the promotion. He was just told every time he opened his mouth, and, and I love it in, in Jeremiah when he says, I'm going to stop talking for you, God, because every time I talk, <laughs> bad things happen. <laughs> and then, then he goes on to say, but your word burned within my mouth. I couldn't help but speak. You know, we look at this, and God is going to do what's best for us. And you know, we don't always know what's best for us. We look at it from a narrow perspective. And many, about a year ago, I gave you this quote, God's will is what we would choose if we knew everything. We need to remember that when we're in the middle of something that doesn't seem like it's very good or, or how could it be God's will, God hasn't closed the books yet. You know, Joseph took 13 years to be promoted. Daniel took a long time to be promoted. All these people sometimes went through a long period of time before God promoted them. Look at Noah. He built the ark for 120 years. How would you like to have to be doing something for 120 years before you see the reward for your obedience? That'd be bad enough, except they were standing around there saying, yeah, right, rain. Yeah. Plus, rain. Teasing, teasing him, you know, you're, what is this rain stuff you're talking about? You mean the water's going to fall from the, you know, hey, you're insane. It hasn't done it yet. You know, okay. we've got to be able to have this faith. God's timing is not our timing. If he allows things to go on for years, it is still for our good or for good for good, 
and he's going to make it for good. That's his promise. And this, again, is a verse I encourage people, learn to believe. For all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And not necessarily for my good, but for good. But it's a promise. Now, will I quote, if you're having a hard time, will I quote that verse to you? Absolutely not, because if you don't believe it going into a problem, it's just going to make you mad for that verse to be quoted to you. But if you believe it going into a problem, it's the greatest comfort that you can have. And many times my prayer has gone, God, I don't understand how this is going to be for good, but you have promised that it is for good. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm just hanging on to that rope at the very end of the rope, at the very end of that knot, saying, God, you've promised. We need to understand his promises and know his promises. We need to know his promises so that when we're in the middle of a trial, that promise may be the only thing that we have to hold on to. And the idea that it is going to work for good is very important. God, that's the only knot that I have. I'm, the end, I'm at the very end of this rope. I'm ready to fall off, but you've promised. You have promised that it's for good. God, you have promised that you will meet all my needs. When you're in the middle of wondering how the bills are going to be paid and, and everything. And in America, our biggest problem is we don't understand the difference between needs and wants. Because we think that we need so much more than the rest of the world mm. needs. Most of the world is happy if they get a, one good meal a day. Right. And if we don't get three meals a day, we are like, we're starving to death, God. You're not meeting our needs. Most of the world, if they have a box to sleep in, they're happy because, and we're hap, un, unhappy if we don't have three or four bedrooms and a phone and cable television. And, you know, it's, it's crazy what Americans think poverty is. And our government has defined poverty at such a high level that the rest of the world would just wish they had half that much money. And we look and say, God, what is it you've got planned for us? Learn to be content. The problem that we have is when we're not content, we need that second job. We need that third job. We need the fourth job. You know, Mom and Dad both need to work and the kids need to work because we just don't have everything that we want. You know, and I keep hearing people go, both parents must work. No, you make sacrifices if that's what you want to do. But don't tell me you have to do the work because you don't need the four-bedroom house. You don't need the two cars. You don't need the, t the cable TV. Technically, you don't even need to run the air conditioning and, 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 you know, uh, all summer long. But what are the needs? And it says that in verse... 10, wherefore should the heathen say, where is your God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of your servants, which is shed. Asaph's call. God, defend yourself. They're, they're making fun of you. They're making fun of you. Now, they deserve to be able to make fun of them because they had not been a good example of followers of God. But Asaph's saying, God, your reputation now is at stake. Go forward. Go forward and defend your people. Let the sign of the prisoners come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those that are appointed to die. One of the things about this that I have and I have thought about, preserve those who are about to die. Sometimes the death of his saints, God says precious in his sight is the death of his saints. 
because we get to go home. And I've, and I've always told you guys, when I was a teenager, I used to tell people the worst they could do was almost kill me. Because yeah. you know, if they killed me, I went home. <laughs> if they almost killed me, I had a lot of pain I had to suffer. And it's how strong I believed. Being dead is a great thing for us as a Christian because we get to go to the presence of the Father. Now, if you're not a Christian, being dead is not good <laughs> because you're going to be dead forever and in punishment forever. But for us as Christians, death is a good thing. Not that we're going to embrace it and try to make it happen quicker or, or anything, but if we don't fully understand that death is stepping into the presence of God, when we face the tribulation that says, are you a Christian, will you stand for God? If we had the wrong view of God, we're not going to make the wrong decision. If I am worried about losing my life, because I am not absolutely sure I'm going to stand before God when I die, I'm going to make the wrong decision because I don't have the right place. Again, it's understanding. Am I going to go out and try to go kill myself? Absolutely not. But just as Paul said, if God's got it, you know, it's good for him to be in this world to teach, but even much better to go home. I understand that. I understand the desire to go home. But while God's got a plan for my life to teach and, and instruct and to help build his kingdom, I want to be here doing everything I can to build his kingdom and help others build the kingdom. But once the plan's done, once, I'm, once he's done with me, I'm ready to go home. I don't want to be around here when it's done. If I can't be teaching people and instructing people, I want to go home. Because there's nothing left here. I don't want to be a worthless shell hanging around a church doing nothing. Uh, I want to be there teaching, instructing, discipling. And I've, I've said over and over that I would love to die while I'm in, in teaching in his word. It would be wonderful to die while I'm teaching. Probably wouldn't be wonderful for those who are being taught, but it would be wonderful as far as I'm concerned for me. But he's saying, God, your reputation is on hand. People are crying. Verse 12, and render unto your neighbors sevenfold, to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach, wherewith they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever and will show forth your praises to all generations. This is so important. He's praying, God, go get them. Give them a lot more than, the, than they gave out. And then it goes, your people, your sheep. Now, most of us don't really understand what he says when they, mean, when they talk about sheep, but sheep are dumb animals. Dumb. I mean, That's me. You know, mm -hmm. um, I, I had a friend who was raising sheep, and he had just a small hill, and the sheep would get outside of the side of his house, and they'd start, you know, buying and buying and buying and he'd have to go out and goes okay sheep over here <laughs> you know they'd lost sight they weren't they weren't more than 10 feet away <laughs> and they were totally lost but don't we do the same thing so often with God you know we don't turn the corner that he turned and immediately we go God where are you you know God where, you know, why did you leave us you say just finish going around the corner I'm right here I haven't gone anywhere as he's leading us, we are his people. We have to give thanks. How often 
do we fail to give God thanks? And I'm not talking about just the good things he gives us. We tend to be better at thanking him for the good, even though oftentimes we forget that. We forget to give God thanks for the good things in our life. But you know, we need to get to the place where we're ready to thank God for everything. In Thessalonians it says, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Most people read that verse, in all good things give thanks, and the bad things complain. <laughs> you know, or at least that's what we do. You know, uh, but God says, in everything give thanks. Why? It goes right back to Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. And again, may not be for my good. It may be for those who are watching me to say, will I honor God even when bad things are happening in my life? Will I serve God? Will I, will I continue to follow him? Or do I gripe and complain and, and get miserable because bad things are happening in my life? All things. Give thanks for all things. It goes back to attitude. It goes back to the attitude. It doesn't mean we stay in the middle of a sinful situation. It does not mean we stay in the middle of a dangerous place if God opens up a path for us to leave. We get out of it. But we still give thanks because God is going to do something. He's going to teach something. He's going to make something happen from that. Something good. And, it, and we want to be careful because he's always going to test what we believe. Is it true? Do we truly believe it? How often have you been in the middle of a trial that you failed and then you realized, wow, I thought I believed that. I thought I believed that God was this, and I failed. God tests us, not so he will know what we're going to decide, but that we will know what we really are. A belief that's not tested is not worth anything. It really isn't. I can say, God, I believe that all things work together for good, and I've never been tested. I don't know for sure that I believe that all things work together for good until God puts me in a test that says, do I believe it? I say, I believe that God is everywhere present and always with me. And then you make some kind of stupid statement of, well, I felt guilty when I saw the pastor. What was wrong with God watching you? Right. Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay. God was watching you, and you're guilty that your pastor or your mother or your father saw you do it. And God's saying, well, I wanted to see if you really believe that I'm watching you. Okay. When we start learning things in the word, he's going to test, do you truly believe what you say you believe? And your test will be designed to see, do you believe it? And the more you know in the scriptures, the harder your test has to be. The more you've passed it, the harder your test will be. And I don't say this to be morose, but as you go forward, your test must be harder. Okay? Just as in school, and we've talked about this, the kindergartner, the kindergartner is going to get a 1 plus 1 equals 2 test, you know, as they're learning addition, or ABCs, whatever it might be. First grader is going to learn 1, one plus 1. You're not going to give the, the first grader, here's your calculus test. <laughs> They'd freak out. 
because it was, doesn't, well, they might not freak out. They're not even developed enough to even know that they don't know what it is. By the same token, you're not going to give that college student, here's your test. One plus one equals two. Two plus two equals four. They're going to look at you and say, are you kidding? <laughs> this isn't a test. When God tests us with trials and tests, it is directly related to what we know and how long we've walked with him. And a test has to be strong enough to be a test. Okay? So when you're in the middle of a test that's hard, know that it is what is needed to test whether you believe him or not. Because usually when we get that test that's hard, we go, oh God, how can you do this to me? Mm -hmm. And he's going, you flunked the test already? Of course we don't realize it's a test. We're not supposed to realize it's a test. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a test. If we knew that it was a test, we wouldn't, you know, when you're prepared, the test that you hated in school was not the announced test on the end of Friday. It was that pop quiz that said, we're going to test, did you read your book last night? And you, those are the ones that terrified you because you weren't prepared. God gives pop tests. He doesn't usually announce this is a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. No, that's not his, not his statement. It's like, here's your test. You know. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Sorry, I went a little long tonight. But Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you, Lord, prepare us for the tests. Prepare our hearts. Keep us humble. Keep us content. Help us to see the tests for what they are when they come our way. And we just thank you. Help us as we go out today to serve you and to honor you in all that we do in your son's name. Amen.